let's go ahead and start again. Yeah, Hi. so so let, let me try this time. All right. Okay. Let me see if I screw it up. Okay. Let's go. Hello, everybody. I'm Steve. And I'm Matt. And welcome to Marvel Reread Club. Is that close All right. enough? That was close enough. That was good. All, <laughs> All right. right. So we um, we are going through the books of Dece- that have a cover date of December 1965. Uh, Matt and I are splitting things up a little bit differently this month. Uh, also, there is now a ninth book that we are reading each month. So this episode, you are getting a jam-packed five issues. And we are trying to distribute the better books more evenly among the two episodes. So yes. hopefully hopefully this will be an experiment that works out well. Yes. Yeah, so tonight, in no particular random order, we are doing Fantastic Four, Strange Tales, Tales of Suspense, X-Men, and Avengers. And we are going to go ahead and do them in this order this month, and we may just keep mixing it up. We wanted to go ahead and get these things split up a little differently. And we were tired of having the first half of the month be good and the last half of the month be bad. And we especially wanted to go ahead and break up Spider-Man and Fantastic Four because yeah, they were they've always sort of been Marvel's two best books. Uh and we were we were starting every month with Spider-Man followed by Fantastic Four and then everything else was downhill from there. And we wanted to go ahead and break those up into different episodes. So tonight we're gonna begin we did Spider-Man last episode and we're doing Fantastic Four Night. So should we go ahead and jump in? Yeah, let's do it. So uh, I believe you uh, are taking this one, correct? All right. So let's do Fantastic Four, Among Us Hide the Inhumans. So last issue, we had the fantastic debut of Joe Sinnott. We have second issue of Joe Sinnott here, still looking absolutely wonderful. Incredible story by Stanley, incomparable pencil by Jack Kirby, invincible inking by Joe Sinnott, inevitable lettering by Artie Simak. We are picking up in the middle of the massive storyline that we were doing last issue. We are dealing with the Inhumans. We are also dealing with Dragon Man. Gorgon has just escaped with Medusa. Dragon Man has just escaped with Sue. And the three Fantastic Four are on a collapsing building. They go ahead and catch up to Dragon Man. They get Sue back. And just in case the storyline was not complicated enough, we briefly visit Sandman and Trapster in prison, who try to <laughs> escape and fail just to complicate things even further. Sue eventually wins Dragon Man over again and convinces him not to give them any trouble. And then the whole storyline stops. <laughs> they they are like, okay, everybody just go back. Everyone can, you know, go about your daily work. And Johnny Storm's like, okay, so I'm going to call up Dory Evans and look for a date. We have not seen Dory Evans in months since the Human Torch had his own book, but they have presumably still been dating all this time. But apparently she has not heard from him in some time either because he calls her up and says, hi, Dory doll. This is your hotshot heartthrob, honey. How about swigging a soda with me while we talk about my favorite subject, us? Huh? What did you say? And then he says to us, he just turns to the camera and says, she can't make it. A chance to go out with me and she's got another date. I always thought there was something very strange about that chick. 
And that is it for Dory Evans. (laughs) (laughs) This was best for Dory Evans. As we find out several years later, she very quickly went and found a man who was much more suitable for her. She got married, started having a couple of kids, and is very happily a married housewife mom a few years from now when Johnny is still just trying to figure out his life. So uh, this, this works out definitely the best for Dory Evans. Yes. But so then I can't be clear enough as to how many plot threads are going on right now. But Johnny Storm is like, nope, everything's all taken care of. I'll just take a walk, take a walk through the crappy neighborhoods of New York City. And it's like, just because that's what you do in New York, you go to the crappiest neighborhood and you just go for a stroll. Well, you know, <laughs> it's it's funny that you say that because on the final panel on page seven, that actually reminds me a little bit of when he walked to the Bowery when he was getting sick of the Fantastic Four. Uh, yes. So I think this is just something Johnny does. He just likes to go walking through dilapidated neighborhoods uh, when when he has something on his mind. He is a flaneur. Um, so then that was way back in issue four. This is issue 45. Okay, okay. you're still... not just going to drop a word like that and then just move on. I don't know what you just said. Flaneur. Look it up. Google it. Flaneur. F-L-A-N-E-U-R. Okay. All right. I will. Um, I'll, I'll do it myself. Sorry. Were you wanting me to do it right now? Yes. <laughs> I was right going to do it later. <laughs> Wait. Okay. Am I, I thought of flaneur. Yes. Flaneur, it it gives the definition idler or lounger. That's not the definition I know. Flaneur is a French noun referring to a person literally meaning stroller, lounger, saunterer, or loafer. Someone who wanders in cities. And then there's flaneurmagazine.com. <laughs> I'm familiar with the definition of stroller or saunterer. Uh, someone who explores cities by just idly walking through them is called a flaneur. Um, oh, so anyway, so then he suddenly sees in a crumbling rundown neighborhood, a beautiful woman in a white dress, barefoot, uh, not with a big black thing in her hair. That does not add until later. And he falls instantly head over heels in love. He is, he says, I hate to be disloyal, but she makes Dory Evans seem like a boy because she is all woman. (laughs) Yeah. He then goes after her, but then she attacks him with wind. So he's like, "Uh, what's going on with her? And then that's it. She just gets away. And then that's just it. He's like, oh, I ran into a beautiful woman. She hit me with wind and got away. And then we cut to however long later, he's just back in costume and hanging out with the Fantastic Four. They are still there with Dragon Man, trying to build Dragon Man his own playpen, I guess. And then Johnny goes for another walk. This is all very poorly plotted. It's very bizarrely plotted in that why do you even have Johnny back with them here? This makes no sense because then... If you're just going to then cut back to Johnny once again going for a walk in the same neighborhood and once again just happened to run into Crystal, why couldn't you have just combined well, those to be one scene? Well, no, clearly he went back to the same spot because he's trying to find her. I don't think this, yes. the second one was not happenstance in any way. I mean, yes, he is searching for her, but it's by sheer luck that he finds her. It's not like he has some special plan for finding her. Well, um, it's called it's called staking out where he last saw her. It says then yeah. after almost an hour of tense waiting, it's her. So, I mean, basically, his strategy is just a stalker. <laughs> yes, very much so. So then he then catches up to her and they quickly realize, wait, we both have powers. We're both we both have flame powers. In fact, we're both shooting flames at each other. 
And uh, they're like, hey, maybe we should hit it off. We seem like we both have flame powers. That's a thing. That's enough to build a relationship on in 1965. And she has very pretty girl eyes. She has long, extremely long eyelashes. So implying they will get along. And then we meet one of my all-time favorite Marvel characters, and that is Lockjaw. I am a huge Lockjaw fan. Lockjaw is the gigantic teleporting dog of the Inhumans. And sure enough, we find out once she is here with Lockjaw, giant teleporting dog with with antenna on its head, she says, let me take you down into our secret base. And she introduces him to the rest of the Inhumans. We meet Karnak, who is a little guy who can karate chop any big piece of stone into little pieces by spotting its weakness. And, and it, the implication here seems to be that this hideout is actually just under New York City. But I'm guessing that this is supposed to be like somehow he's been teleported to wherever their hideout is. I think now. they're under New York City. I think they have a hideout under New York City. Yeah, sure. I think so. And then he runs into Gorkin and Medusa again. And it's like, oh, you guys must be inhumans like Crystal. And this explains everything. And then there's also Triton, who is a green guy who's still under a hood, so we don't know much about him yet. And then they keep talking about Black Bolt. When Black Bolt orders of this, his anger will be unimaginable. Uh, but so then Johnny gets away, makes, puts a big flaming four in the sky to summon the Fantastic Four. The Fantastic Four, which is to say the other three of them, come in a flying motorcycle thing that is just awesome. Page oh, 118. Spectacular. This is, I mean, it's hard to get more Kirby, Sinat, 1960s goodness than this flying three-person motorcycle. <laughs> this is just spectacular. Yes, it is absolutely gorgeous. Well, it's it's a four-person motorcycle, but there's only three people on it right now. Right. Sure enough, they get to Chani, and he is explaining to them who the Inhumans are, and then suddenly Black Bolt shows up. And I've got to say, one of my all-time favorite Marvel characters is Lockjaw. One of my all-time least favorite Marvel characters is Black Bolt. I just don't like Black Bolt. I don't like his look. I don't like his powers. I don't like his thing, which is that... If he speaks, then his voice is so loud, it will destroy everything in the immediate area. But Marvel Comics often do a poor job with disability. And this is, I think Black Bolt is the ultimate example of doing a poor job with disability. This is essentially a disability. He can't speak, speak without causing big trouble. And he never learns sign language. He never even gets a little notepad where he can write things down to let people know things. Instead, they just take it from this point on as being like, oh, I wonder what Black Bolt, our leader, thinks about this. Well, he can't tell us, so let's imagine what he might say if he could speak. And it's like, people who have disabilities learn to operate around their disability. He would have some way to communicate his thoughts and feelings. He could just have a little... He could, on like the Buffy Hush episode, he could just get a little dry erase board around his neck and a a marker (laughs) and write down everything he is thinking. Well, for for as terrible as the Inhumans TV show was, and oh boy, was it terrible. It was one of the worst things I've ever watched. But they did at least have Black Bolt and Medusa had sort of their own sign language they would that they would use between them. Good. So that was nice, at least. Yeah, but the thing about Black Bolt has always gotten me is just the mishmash of different stuff that's going on. So, like, he has the little tuning fork thing on his forehead. It's supposed to be absorbing power from his immediate area that he can then use as super strength. He has these things that look like wings under his arms. He's wearing a mask, even though he's king of his people. 
Yes, yeah, yeah, the mask. I hate the mask. It looks yes. like, yeah, he looks like Batman. He looks like someone who is hiding his identity, but clearly right. is not. And then we never see him without it. And one of the reasons why we never see Black Bolt not wearing his outfit is that he would be nobody. Right. It's not like he can even speak. He's not doesn't even have a personality. If you didn't have Black Bolt wearing the dumb looking Black Bolt costume he wears, there would be nothing to him. I just can't stand Black Bolt. So, yeah. but that's how we end the issue. Yeah, and and the Inhumans in general can be a little bit. They can be great in certain ways, and if they're just brought in as like a bit part in a storyline, like kind of what they're doing here, they can be really awesome. But you know, then when you start drilling down into him at all, it's just like, oh, so he's king. He's king of what? A half dozen people? Oh no, no, no! There are more. There's this whole slave race that we have that we're uh, ruling over. It's like, so you're the bad guys then <laughs> it's like no no we're oh you know what you're right that probably wasn't a good thing so we'll free them and now they are quote equal to us although we never see them in our society <laughs> you know it's just uh, it, it just if you think about it more than 10 seconds it all just really seems to fall apart now you know the the inhumans are going to become a major part of all fantastic four stories from this point on until at least issue 60 or so and it's going to be, I think they're going to be a mixed bag. I never liked Black Bolt, but I like the rest of them pretty well. And I think it Kirby loves them. And Kirby, eventually, when he finally starts getting writing credit on some Marvel comics, Inhumans will be the first comic he gets writing credit on. This seems like a particular favorite of his. And he clearly, as the Fantastic Four enters their best era, these next 16 issues where they will be a major part of the Fantastic Four will be the best, the very best issues of Fantastic Four. So he is, they are doing wonderful things for Kirby. He is doing wonderful things for them. Ultimately, they are a bit problematic as, you know, I've never thought they really could hold their own series. But no. I uh, but I think they are a wonderful element of the Fantastic Four going forward, especially for these next yes. 16 incredible issues. Well, and, and similar to how I thought that Submariner was great when he was a character in Fantastic Four, but then you brought him over into his own series, and the way Stan Lee handles him just doesn't really do much for me when he doesn't when he isn't acting as a foil for someone else. You know, maybe if he were still characterized the way that uh, Bill Everett characterized him back in the Golden Age, that might be something completely different, but that's not what we have. Uh, so just to run through a few things that jumped out at me, when Johnny is flying around at one point and he says, boy, that was a close one. I almost got caught in the blast caused by his thermal heat hitting the atoms of the air. <laughs> like thermal heat. So... Thermal heat, those basically mean the same thing. Hitting the atoms of the air. The atoms of the air are what would be hot. I, my, And then now I'm cross-eyed. So, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, once again, this is, this is Stan Lee's science we're talking about. And, you know, a kid isn't going to know that. They're just going to think, wow, that sounds awesome. So, you know, that's really how we should be looking at this. Johnny is certainly incredibly self-centered. As this, He's probably more self-centered in this issue than we usually see him. And we usually see him as pretty self-centered. But, you know, which the whole thing about, you know, she can't make it. She had a chance to go out with me. He says, I always thought there was something very strange about that chick. It's just like... You know, somebody must have something wrong with them if they don't think that I'm the best thing that's ever happened to them before. Oh, yeah. And at one point when uh, Dragon Man has woken up when they're trying to set up something for him to live in the Baxter building, but they now need to sedate him again. They're scrambling to try and get this taken care of. And Reed says, I'll try to break them up, honey. You see if you can find the tranquilizer gun. 
She says, don't get too near them, darling. He says, stop sounding like a wife and find me that gun, lady. Which um, is possibly the most American line of dialogue I have ever read. Like, tell me you're American without tell me you're, telling me you're American. We get a little bit more of Ben's self-pitying. You know, self-pitying sounds a little bit too belittling. But um, essentially, his his descent into some deep, deep depression uh, that, that he's been having in the last couple of issues. And, uh, he thinks to himself, yeah, that's the way Alicia must feel about me when they were talking dragon man being like, you know, Oh, we just want to take care of him. He's, you know, he's, he's not that bad. Says, yeah, that must be the way Alicia must feel about me too. It can't be love. It's just pity. The pity of beauty for the beast. I ain't heard from Alicia for days. Maybe she found someone better, better, what a laugh. How could he be worse? And then in the next panel, he uh, ends up just saying, well, you know what? Ben Grimm is dead. Long live the thing. And, you know, this will continue on. This will be a long running theme for him and be part of what makes him a real complex character. Yeah, I had a few more thoughts to add. Of course, when Ben falls from a great height on page two, he, of course, lands on an awning. Luckily, Johnny has to drop Ben and Ben says, lucky he hung on to us till we was over this awning. Like, oh, awnings, where would the Marvel Universe be without you? And flagpoles. And flagpoles. Yes. In this case, <laughs> it was an awning, not a flagpole. Um, yeah. But I mean, but I, I didn't make clear before that, like, not only does Johnny just happen to run into this major new plot element, but it is he was just dealing with the Inhumans and then the Inhumans get away. And then he's walking and he randomly runs into an Inhuman right in the middle of this Inhuman storyline. He happens to run into an inhuman it is way too much of a coincidence it basically is the big the biggest problem with this issue is there's always one of the bigger problems that kirby and lee have on the fantastic four is getting characters from a to b getting characters kirby as co-potter is not as sophisticated as dicko as co-potter dicko and spider-man does a better job getting people from a to b than Dick kirby does in fantastic four and often involves huge coincidences and this is one of them i don't disagree with you for the most part but i i will say that the whole thing about him running into crystal doesn't seem like quite as much of a coincidence because it seems to me that you know the inhumans are in the area for a reason and that she is with the rest of the inhumans she seemed to be waiting for them almost uh to get you know, to get back. So that, that doesn't strike me as being too, too, I mean, it is coincidental, but not too much for a comic book. Yeah. Yeah. Not too much for a comic book. Crystal's powers have always been a little unclear over the years. You know, here she seems to have wind powers and fire powers, but when she actually joins the Fantastic Four later and takes Sue's place, it was never clear to me what her powers were. She never really was useful at all when she was a member of the Fantastic Four. Uh, her powers are more clear here than they will be later. She sort of has just elemental powers is how they sum them up. But um, but I like, you know, one of the things I like in this issue is we have more of Johnny serial monogamist, how he was in love with Dory and then it didn't work out. And now he is in love with somebody new who he's going to be in love with for about oh, 60 issues or so. This becomes a very strong element of the Fantastic Four is Johnny's intense love for Crystal, which will drive a lot of stories from this point on. And I think it's a good element of the Fantastic Four. Yeah, I mean, it's it gives him some definite characterization. Yeah, and then, it, and then my last note was, I just wrote down the words, iconometric framistat, which uh, <laughs> I think at one point... <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's when they're setting with them and they're setting up the uh, the whole home for Dragon Man. There's something they're moving out of the way, uh, which is that. Yeah. Uh, and that that's a great sequence, too, about just, you know, the little things about, oh, yeah, they're having to do stuff in their headquarters. And here's all this crazy equipment that's there. And, you know, thing is just always hauling these multi-ton pieces of equipment around like nothing and uh you know reed is just wrapped up in his brain just like giving people orders about what's happening and you know sue actually sue is doing some great work with her uh force fields here getting they're getting more and more creative with these sort of uh non-offensive powers that the women have in these team books uh, as we're going to be seeing in x-men as well uh but i found that interesting how she was able to uh uh, transport that stuff. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I can't. I'm going back to the issue. I can't find when anybody actually says iconometric frame instead. But I know I didn't make it up. I know I, uh, that was probably a line in the actual book. Okay. Let's go ahead and have you do Strange Tales, which you are lucky uh, to get to do because it's a great book. Indeed. Uh, by the way, uh, page nine, panel one is where that comes in. It says, easy with that iconometric framestat, Ben. Try not to shake it too much. Yes, you were correct, and it was right there. So, okay. Strange Tales, the cover is really odd here. I don't know what the heck happened production-wise, but Doctor Strange is reading a tabloid-size Nick Fury agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. that actually has the exact same panel as the splash panel inside yes, <laughs> it says it is quite strange it says almost everybody reads shield and it points to dr strange yeah it's just one of the more bizarre things that we've seen so the brave die hard so we start out with this thing where you're like wait did i miss something from last issue nick fury is floating seemingly out in space freezing from the cold and then there's some big like monster looking satellite thing coming up like it's about to eat him uh so this is sensationally written by stan lee spectacularly laid out by jack kirby superbly illustrated by joe sinnott so he's essentially joe sinnott is doing finished pencils and inks and then silently lettered by Artie simak i do notice that it looks like joe sinnott is seems to be making an effort to maintain some continuity and style with John Severin, who was uh, doing the previous issues. Yes. So obviously I love Sinat, but he's not as good as Severin. Uh, Severin was doing such a good job on this book. He was so perfectly matched for this book for the last several issues. But I can't complain about Sinat. Sinat's so great. And this is an excellent issue. But but I do miss Johnny Severin, who was so good on this book. Right. Uh, So it turns out that this is just a fever dream that Nick Fury is having while Hydra is trying to probe his brain for this secret weapon. Uh, The secret weapon is called the Brainosaur, and I don't think he had actually gotten much information about it. So basically, this is just sort of his dream-like imagination of what a what a brainosaur would look like, which is kind of cool looking. But at one point while watching, well, in his fever dream, he just says, it just shot flame out of its mouth. It blew up the bomb. But that ain't possible. It's not a real dinosaur, which could breathe fire. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, they give up on interrogating him with this particular thing, and they bring him into Supreme Hydra. 
Meanwhile, uh, Tony Stark and the group that runs S.H.I.E.L.D. is trying to figure out what to do next. Page four, panel two, uh, if you look at any of our social media stuff, uh, I had a whole thing about the different way that the uh, word balloons flow on that one, and then it didn't seem to work well for me. Uh, But we won't go into that in more detail here because it would it would uh, require a lot more describing than I need to be doing in here. Fury has been taken back to his cell in the Hydra base, and they feed him through this little circular thing, sort of like the thing you would hand a check to a uh, a teller in the drive-thru sort of thing. And they have in there these little packets that just say steak, bread, coffee, fruit, and he unwraps the steak one, and a sirloin steak essentially cooks itself as you open the package. And I'm like, wow, man, Hydra treats its prisoners well. They're giving them steak and coffee and fruit. And Wow, this is, uh, this is pretty awesome. Lee does say at one point, for the more scientific-minded, Fury's food was reduced by energy compression, and then, upon contact with air, it resumed its basic form by the instant release of the compressed energy. Helpful stand. Yes. Then the uh, female Hydra agent, who is actually the daughter of Supreme Hydra, she comes in and wants to interrogate the prisoner by herself. And everyone else is like, that's against regulations. We can't do that. And she's like, you know who I am and you know who my dad is. Do you really want to tell me no? They're like, uh, I guess we should leave. So then she tells, you know, Fury that she's really not into this whole thing and she wants to help him. He then uses his gadget of his exploding shirt that we already saw earlier. I think we may have cut mention of the exploding shirt when I was editing the uh, that episode. Oh, did we? uh, I think uh, we may. He he had when he was getting. When his tailor was giving him all sorts of fancy stuff, last issue, he gave him an exploding shirt. That's what you need to know. Yes. And so he just exploded the shirt to get himself out of the cell. Then a bunch of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, actually one of the captured Hydra vehicle that we saw at one point last issue that has Dum Dum Dugan and Gabe Jones, along with several other S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, is on its way to hopefully find, to find their boss, to find Nick Fury. We once again see the whole boardroom thing, and then things start going haywire in the boardroom. So, uh, you know, of course, the Hydra base is right underneath the boardroom, which seems like a poor choice in terms of keeping your secret organization secret but he goes down to see what the heck's going on and finds out that nick fury and his daughter are having a all knockdown drag out fight to uh escape this place and the shield agents are flying in guns ablazing. so uh, that's more or less where we leave it in the hydra base we now have this whole bunch of shield agents who are just wrecking havoc and trying to get out of there with the collaboration of supreme hydra's daughter Yes. It's just tons of fun. It really is. It's, it's 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 really great. And I'm glad that Sinat is trying to keep some of that visual continuity with John Severin. Yeah, Sinat's doing a fine job. Uh, the art looks really great in this issue. It uh, doesn't have the personality that Severin had, but it's still really well done. I mean, this is a bizarre issue. The whole beginning with this, I mean, it's yeah. a bizarre splash page to have Fury versus this huge weird creature in outer space. It's even more bizarre when you then reproduce the flash, the splash page on the cover, sort of promising a book you're not going to deliver because that, you know, turns out to just be a dream sequence, which then you essentially have on the cover. It's very strange. But one of the most shocking things about this story is at the end they go like, okay, next issue we're going to wrap everything up. 
And uh, they're sort of in a wrap up mode here on a lot of books this month. I'm like, oh, you know, we're in the middle of a 12 issue storyline in Doctor Strange. I assumed we would get at least 12 issues out of Fighting Hydra, you know, given how much action James Bond got out of James Bond versus Spectre and how much action Man from Uncle got out of Man from Uncle versus Thrush. Then I'm kind of surprised they're wrapping up so soon. They will sort of regret that. They'll go ahead and wrap up the Hydra storyline next issue. And then they will sort of flounder for uh, several issues without Hydra to give Fury meaning in his life. And then they will come back and they will have a new Supreme Hydra who will be a villain from the Sergeant Fury book. And they will have the second great Hydra storyline. But for now, they're going to wrap it up, I think, a bit prematurely next issue. Mm -hmm. But that's good to wrap it up while the art is still good before uh, Don Heck takes over. Don Heck's going to take over briefly. And then we're going to get the great Jim Stranko, who's going to take over this book. But this issue with Sinat is an excellent issue. And this is a lot of fun. Yes. And we promised Rob Selkowitz that we would have him back for the first Stranko issue. So (laughs) we need to remember that. Yeah, I really like this issue a lot. I feel like it really feels like an episode of Spy TV. It feels like an episode of Fan from Uncle or something where inevitably you would have in those 1960s spy shows, the hero would be infiltrating the villain's organization and there would be a beautiful woman there who the hero would have to team up with somehow, uh, either because she was a turncoat member of the organization or had been kidnapped by them or something. But there was always like, oh, hello, beautiful woman, help me take down this these evil people. And I really like the way she is set up here. And I really like that Fury has a girl sidekick here who is quite badass and is blowing people away with a big machine gun. Really feels like the best of 60s spy TV, watching the two of them with their machine guns uh, rampaging through this. It's a really fun issue. Yes, and, and actually come to think of it, I did have another uh, panel that I'd saved here where she is telling him that she wants to betray Hydra. Uh, and she says, quickly, Fury, they will check with my father and learn that he did not send me here. We have only seconds left to us. Only you can stop my father's mad scheme. If you'll promise he won't be harmed, I'll help you. He says, no deals, lady. This ain't a swap shop. Now get back against the wall. She says, the wall? Look, when I need an echo, I'll let you know. And then that's where he blows up the uh, <laughs> the thing. But just, you know, the, the gruff the gruff banter that they give him is, uh, you know, certainly has a lot of character to it. Yes. Always okay. in trouble. Next, we're getting to Doctor Strange, Master of the Mystic Arts. We are approaching the final climax of this long storyline. We're not quite there yet, but uh, beware. Are we saying Dormammu or Dormammu? I say, I think I say Dormammu, you say Dormammu. Let's call the whole thing off. Okay, so uh, beware, Dormammu is watching. Script by Sterling Stanley. Art by stalwart Steve Ditko, lettering by stoical Artie Simak. So um, once again, very odd that Ditko does not get his new normal plotting credit on this book. He just, Stan gets script credit, Steve gets art credit, neither of them gets plotting credit. Very strange, but I assume this is still being plotted by Steve Ditko. Yes. So this story, the main thing I want to say about it is it is just a spectacular magic powers battle throughout yes. this entire thing. It, it's just really, really stunningly good. Uh, I've got lots of different just panels that I've saved here that I'm just looking at. I'm like, wow, this is just defining how you do this. But uh, we finally, uh, at the last issue, had it happen that uh, now Doctor Strange and Baron Mordo are face-to-face for their battle. Dormammu is uh, still watching through his little mystical TV screen. 
they're somehow able to bring the very weak but no longer comatose ancient one there to witness his disciples downfall meanwhile they they take a while to like sort of whisper to each other to try to figure out some strategy which is like i don't think you want to let them take so much time to figure out what they're going to do uh that's probably not the best idea so then yeah uh dr shane and baron mordo face off and you know battles of magical powers can be uh, you know they can be difficult to make work well if you want to know how to make them work well w- read this issue it's just yes. amazing with the different like force bolts that they're firing at each other and how they're then creating various shields that are reflecting them and they're bouncing back off in other directions and you have one that like you know he's got like three or four layers of shielding and this thing is able to shatter through most of them but is stopped at the last possible shield that's just amazing storytelling just watching the art of making comics is so much a matter of using one panel that is seemingly one moment frozen in time but not having that panel be one moment frozen in time, having a sense of multiple things happening, a series of time taking place within one panel is how you do great comic storytelling. And that those panels where you see Baron Mordo's bolt breaking through a series of shields that get smaller and smaller until it finally gets stopped by the last shield is a great example of telling epic storytelling within a single panel. It's really gorgeous. Yeah, it's hard for me to say enough good things about how this fight scene is displayed. So finally, the trick that Doctor Strange has come up with is sprung. So on page seven, he releases his ectoplasmic self from his body while his body is still out there doing its thing. This is not supposed to be possible. You shouldn't be able to do this. And uh, Mordo at this point is like, he tricked us when he said that Eternity gave him no power. This is clearly a power that he could only have gotten from Eternity. So then that starts to make him panic a little bit and lose some of his confidence and think that, oh, no, he's got more tricks up his sleeve. So I need to, you know, so I'm going to he starts getting a little bit more reckless. Eventually, the uh, Ancient One is able to share some of his power, even though he's still very weak. And the issue still ends on a cliffhanger we're not done with this epic battle yet at the end mordo and strange are fighting and then in the middle is the little mystical tv screen that dormammu is watching through and it just says then a sudden flash blazes from the dimension of darkness many many infinities away uh mordo says dormammu what what does this mean and dr strange is thinking he is done taking merely a passive stand now he himself will strike and that's uh the battle that will happen in the next issue i also noticed that uh stan lee likes having these sort of various asian phrases that he likes to throw in just to sort of make things seem more exotic you know with the exoticization of the oriental and at the end he says tamam should which uh i googled and apparently that the main thing that comes up when you google that phrase is there was a mysterious murder in australia years ago where the body had a note on it that said tamam should apparently that is because it is i believe it was persian it's uh, some some uh, some asian language uh that just means basically this is the end 
Um, huh. But so, yeah. Anyway, um, you know, he he's clearly pulling these things out and trying to make it feel more mystical. And of course, the way you make things feel for myst- more mystical, especially in the 60s, is to make them more vaguely Asian. Yes. <laughs> so that, that was pretty much considered synonymous. Uh, but yeah, that's it. So I am looking forward to getting further into this climax in the next issue. Yes, things are feeling very climactic at this point. This is, we're just at a absolute uh, white hot intensity in this storyline, and it is just building and building and building. We'll continue to build into next issue, and it is a fantastic issue. I love the idea, you know, so we had last issue strange winter eternity and said you've got to help me you've got to help me and he turns like nope not going to help you i think you can handle it by yourself not going to help you and at this point dormu and fernmoro are sort of afraid of him at the beginning going like oh he's been helped by eternity how he's going to help us dr strange very honestly says nope eternity didn't help me at all i'm on my own here and dormu believes him but Baron Mordo does not. Well, I kind of wish that Doctor Strange had said, oh, Eternity didn't help me, but I'm going to go ahead and bluff them into thinking that he did help me. And then it would be a bit more intentional. It would be a bit more, we could give the credit to Doctor Strange that he then is able to, when he seemingly does something he wasn't able to do before, that then this freaks out Baron Mordo so much that Baron Mordo loses the battle. But instead... Strange was entirely honest, and Mordo just is like, you know, still manages to fake himself out and go like, oh, clearly he got powers from eternity, and therefore I'm going to lose it during this battle because I believe that I'm being overmatched when I'm really not. But uh, I kind of wish that that had been intentional on Doctor Strange's part. But in fact, poor Baron Mordo just keeps defeating himself. But I really like this idea that Eternity refuses to help Doctor Strange, but just because they don't believe that, that then that ends up helping him is a very clever, ironic twist. But uh, this is a fantastic issue. I absolutely love it. I believe that that was Strange's strategy going into this, that he just created an illusion that he was doing this impossible thing of releasing his astral self while also still being conscious in his body, and that, uh, that that was a deliberate strategy to throw to make Baron Mordo panic and get um, sloppy, uh, so that he could then uh, take him. So yeah, I, I suppose I, that could have been that could have been intentional. I I just it's just a wonderfully ironic thing to have go to this other dimension and talk to this all power figure. It's like no, I'm not going to help you, and then come back, but simply because the other your villains won't believe that you weren't helped, you're able to then use that to trick them into defeating themselves. That's wonderful ironic storytelling. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, and, and I, you know, Eternity said, essentially, you know, cleverness is what you're going to need and you've got enough of it. Right? Yeah. So he, he did what he was told. Yeah. Yep. All right. So let's go ahead and keep moving here. So uh, Tales of Suspense featuring Iron Man and Captain America would be you. The sleeper shall awake. We have Iron Man in the little corner box on the cover, but he is not on the main cover. And we have the sleeper shall awake. And right away... This cover has the whole problem with this issue. I think this is a perfectly good issue of Captain America ruined. Well, but I guess I don't want to get into that yet because Iron Man comes first in the issue. No, I'm going to go ahead and get into it. This (laughs) cover, I'm going to go ahead and start by talking about the cover. On the cover, you see a little preview of the Captain America story. And right away, you have the whole issue. The whole reason this issue was ruined for me, or at least this Captain America story is ruined for me. And it all comes down to two words. Elbows and knees. And this is 
an extremely dumb looking robot uh, without elbows and knees. But let's go ahead and do the Iron Man story first, and then we'll actually look at this Captain America robot once we get to him in the second story. Yes, so we have the Iron Man story, Stanley, Don Heck, Mickey DeMeo. I like Mickey DeMeo's inks. I like his inks on Don Heck in this issue. It works out surprisingly well. Uh, I, I was happy with it. Mickey DeMeo, really Mike Esposito, adds a lot of thickness and real-world reality to Don Heck's drawings. Makes them much more solid than Don Heck tends to draw them. One thing I wanted to point out here is that, uh, you know, the Marvel Universe, as we have chronicled, has been getting more and more, to use the term of the day, integrated, as in we've been seeing more just incidental black folks in the crowd, primarily in Ditko's work, uh, but then also to some extent in Kirby's, uh, apparently not in Don Heck's. Uh, there was, uh, and I just noticed that the uh, the newspaper that the woman is holding there says, Iron Man arrives today. Entire city to turn out for heroes welcome. Ticker tape parade planned. And I'm looking at the crowd and I'm like, really? The entire city? <laughs> it <laughs> looks like only a certain segment of the city is out here. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're making progress, but you know. So then Iron Man is still being cheered on for defeating the Titanium Man, but he goes home to his lab and sulks because he is completely torn up inside. Uh, Meanwhile, the Countess who betrayed Iron Man when he was fighting the Titanium Man now wants to betray him all the more. And so she gets hooked up with the Mad Thinker, goes over to the Mad Thinker's place, and they are working together against Iron Man. We then have Andy the Awesome Android attacks Tony Stark in his office, They're still doing this thing where Andy can go ahead and turn into, he is much more like the super adaptoid will later be, someone who can actually turn himself into a copy of the superheroes. This will not be his thing for long. That will be the thing of a different robot called the super adaptoid, but they're still having it happen here. Now, um, now let me let me point out. You keep on calling him Andy. He is not named Andy for decades after yes. this. He is just the awesome. He is just the thinker's awesome android. That's it. So yes, uh, you know, in the two thousands, at some point, he gets named Andy. But <laughs> that is not what he is called here. In case anybody's looking through the issue, like, where did he get the name? What's going on? Yes, in Dan Slott's wonderful She Hulk book, uh, he will be called Andy, the awesome android, and he will grow greatly as character but so then andy brings tony stark back to the man thinker who is on quite a throne on page seven he's uh that's uh, <laughs> that's quite an epic throne to be sitting on tony stark tricks man thinker to opening up his briefcase which it turns out has gas that shoots out this gives tony stark a chance to get dressed up as iron man fight andy the android eventually he defeats i'm not going to dwell a lot on this issue he defeats man thinker he puts man thinker in jail where Mad Thinker is continuing to do his thinker pose. But then the Countess, who has been working with the Mad Thinker, he does not send to jail. He makes her walk home in heels, which is the greatest punishment that any woman can receive. <laughs> and, uh, and she is soaking her feet in a bath, and she says, I wish he had taken me to jail with the thinker instead of making me walk all those miles home. Men, I'm beginning to hate them all. It's like, okay, she is. She betrayed her country and tried to get you killed when you were fighting the Titanium Man. Now she is directly working with America's enemies to destroy you. Um, I think you should maybe actually send her to prison. <laughs> I think that maybe <laughs> just telling her to go soak her feet is not actually the nicest thing. Then we have a, you know, so we know that Tony is trying to 
keep Pepper from falling in love with him. And he is like, I'm going to have to just be absolutely horrible to her more and more and more every issue in an attempt to keep her from falling in love with me. It is so painful to read. It is. And then things get even worse here on the final page. He says, it took me half an hour to shake those reporters, Pepper. Why were they allowed on the premises? And she says, I'm sorry, Mr. Stark. I was busy footing the hospital. I didn't think she says, footing the hospital. Why? She says, it's happy, boss. Something's happened and they won't tell me what it is. And then he says, nonsense. You must be imagining things just like you imagined that android creature. Now get back to work. So he is not caring at all about Happy. He is gaslighting her into thinking that she imagined that he was attacked by an android. It's like, wow, you are you are inventing all new levels of dickishness that people cannot even <laughs> imagine at this point. And all and you're still in love with her. She's still in love with you. She doesn't think so. She says, I was I was right. He is heartless. He's more of a machine than a man. How could I have ever thought I loved him? But of course she's still in love with him. He's still in love with her. All he is doing is bringing needless pain into this relationship. He is a horrible human being. This is a terrible issue. And let's, I, I am done with it. Do you have anything to add? Well, I, I do have to point out that a wise person once said that you need to be cruel to be kind in the right measure. Yes, so it's true. Uh, I think he, he read that and may have mis- misapplied uh, the wisdom so uh the the only thing i wanted to point out is that at one point when the android is busting into the room with tony he says what in the name of a thousand transistors is that just like stop just don't just don't try to make that happen stan (laughs) it's not helping anybody that's it yeah i do think that mike esposito inking heck he's one of the better inkers that heck has had uh although not the best we're gonna have some really fantastic inking on heck later in this episode that i will point out yes anyway so yeah uh uh let's go ahead and move on to captain america Yes, good heck inking month. Starting with Vicky Debate doing a good job, and we're about to get an even better job in the Avengers. But let's go on and go to Captain America. So, Captain America, I gotta say, Stanley, Jack Kirby, George Tuska, the Tuska Kirby combo is getting better and better. This is a really nice issue. It really started off poorly with Tuska, I guess. It, he's had different inkers in different issues, but in this issue, it's Kirby doing layout and then Tuska doing both finished pencils and inks, and it looks pretty nice. So, now, you recall that for a long time, we were getting Captain America stories set in World War II because Stan Lee said, I don't want to try to keep track of continuity. I don't want to have to keep track of characters from the Avengers having continuity in other books. And so he had everyone quit the Avengers who had their own book except for Captain America. And then he switched Captain America's book back to World War II tales so he didn't have to keep up the continuity. Okay, that worked well enough. Well, now he's decided, nope, apparently that Captain America comics weren't selling well enough or he just felt he wasn't getting good enough stories out of that. So now with this issue, he's moving back to Captain America in modern day. Well, already right away on page one, the continuity with the Avengers doesn't match up because in what's going on in the Avengers book right now is that Captain America has quit the Avengers in a huff and it isn't getting along with the Avengers at all. Well, then we get to the Captain America book and Captain America is hanging out with the Avengers and they are, Wanda is literally kneeling at his feet saying, oh, please tell me more, tell me more. So they're getting along great. And so already the continuity is growing up 
on page one of the modern day book. The way I read this is that essentially the World War II stories we've been reading in the last few months, uh, th- this is now like sort of retroactively made a framing sequence for that, that this has been you know, Captain America telling the Avengers about his days during World War II, and those are the stories we've just seen. And so presumably this started three or so months ago in terms of the issues that have come out, and so it was before they had gotten all split up. That's how I read it. It didn't jump out at me as a huge issue. Well, now are the Avengers going to go, okay, wait, back up, Cap. Why would dude Omar and Sandu have footage of the sabotage they did before they actually (laughs) did it? And we have so many questions, Cap. But uh, no, they do not get a chance to respond to any of the crazy stories that Cap has just told them about his World War II days. But so then he is telling them stories about World War II. He then goes and mopes, always lots of moping. And then he looks up at the ceiling. This is similar to the uh, Netflix miniseries, The Queen's Gambit, where she's always imagining things on her ceiling. Did you ever watch The Queen's Gambit? Yes. I was locked down the same as everybody else was. Of course, I watched <laughs> yes. The Queen's Gambit. What else did you do? It's like Queen's Gambit, uh, Tiger King, um, you know, catched up, caught up on some modern Trek, uh, Star Trek, you know, all sorts of stuff. Anyway, yeah. Yes, but uh, this reminds me of this when he's seeing, he suddenly yeah. sees the Red Skull on his ceiling mocking him. And he remembers the death of Red Skull, which is something we've never seen in any of these comics. And it turns out the Red Skull died in a way that was very unclear, which is always good for modern comics if people die when it's unclear. Okay, here's my big problem with this, is that it has been shown that Bucky died when the Red Skull was pulling some kind of something and, you know, shooting this this rocket off to the America or whatever. No, no, not at all. That that was Zima. Oh. Okay, never mind. You can cut that. Oh no, I'm leaving Lynn. <laughs> oh, by all means, I'm just uh, uh you know, I'm, I'll own it, man. I want you to stand there in your wrongness and be wrong. So, I will do so. So then, uh, so yes, so we find out where Cap last saw Red Skull. He was in an underground bunker. And then suddenly there was more of a cave-in and Cap got separated from Red Skull and assumed that he died. Well, of course he didn't die, but that's the odd thing about this issue is you would expect this to be a setup for the fact that it turns out Red Skull is still alive. Well, we're about to have a whole storyline about Red Skulls causing trouble in the present. Okay, good. We've established he didn't really die. Now he's going to cause trouble in the present. But he's not actually in this storyline. He, this is all about a backup plan he left in place when he died, which is going to occupy our next several issues of this comic. And he will not actually show up in modern day until several storylines later, oddly enough. This is my problem with this particular story, is that you've got this whole thing that will arise 20 years later to revive the Third Reich. If you have these things now, why don't you use them to stop the Third Reich from being defeated? Yes, like- indeed. <laughs> but I mean, I, I understand the this is for kids and this is, you know, you have to have modern day stuff. And how do you bring this in? But still, that's just one thing that just sticks me, <laughs> sticks with me is like, oh, my God. Goodness. Oh, I will also point out that that right before they get into uh, all of this, when uh, they still have the Avengers framing sequence, Captain America says Bucky was lost on a mission later in the war. He died as bravely as he had lived. And Hawkeye says, too bad. The way you describe him, he might have made a real swing in Avenger. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> just oh my goodness uh okay good yeah so then captain america wakes up in the middle of the night suddenly remembers this whole thing and then he's like oh yeah i had a list i have a metal box the one i took from the red skull before the cave-in and it had a list of all of his sleeper agents and uh and it said at the bottom of the list it has a list of all the sleeper agents and at the bottom it says der tag 1965 so this is poor plotting to turn out that Cap has known who the Red Skull's sleeper agents are all this time and has waited until the date on the sheet to actually go and try to stop them. Like, oh, I know they're going to do something in 1965. I'd better wait till they're in the middle of doing it in 1965 to actually go and try to do something about this sheet of paper that I've had with me for 20 years. Well, yeah, and the, the, the thing that always gets me about this, too, is just like, uh, you were found frozen in a chunk of ice. How did you... How do you get this this little locker thing? How, how is it that you have this? What is this stored by the U.S. military and then given to you when you got for unfrozen? Was this tucked under your shield when you were like, how how exactly do we have this thing? I know, I know, I'm I'm, I'm diving into this a little too much, but you know, I always assumed going. I always assumed that Steve Rogers had personal items that were put in storage after he disappeared, and that Cap was unable to get them out of storage once he came back to life. But well, let's go um, with that. But so then, sure enough, so Cap has just been carrying around this sheet of paper, telling him about the entire enemy's plan that he has done nothing with. Meanwhile, the enemy's plan is actually coming into life at this point. We cut to people in Germany who are putting on their old Nazi outfits and awakening a sleeper. And it turns out there are three sleepers who are three robots that are buried around Germany and three sleeper agents who are, well, it's sort of confusing because the agents are sleeper agents and the robots that are waking up are also called sleepers and are attacking. Now, the thing I hate about this issue, and I already mentioned it when we talked about the cover, is knees and elbows. The giant robot that erupts. Now, generally, I love giant robots. I love it when heroes find giant robots. We're about to do an X-Men issue where they find giant robots, and I love it. But this is such a stupid-looking robot on page seven and on the cover because it has no knees and elbows. And it is, you know, walking around like Frankenstein with a stiff-legged and stiff-armed. And I think this is maybe the stupidest-looking robot we've had in Marvel Comics so far. What do you think about this robot, Steve? Uh, it doesn't do much for me. I, it didn't seem to bother me quite as much as it bothers you. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's pretty silly. It's a very silly-looking robot. It, now, it, now, now, but when you talk about silly-looking robots, we have discussed how one of Steve Ditko's weaknesses is in making non-silly-looking robots. So, I mean, I think you could make a case that the living computer or even possibly the first Spider Slayer uh, is in contention uh, with this thing for the silliest robot that we've seen in Marvel, the Marvel Universe so far. Yeah, but this is worse. This is this this <laughs> makes uh, Dicko's robots look genius. So then, Captain America then very belatedly, even though he's had a list of the bad guys for twenty years, finally shows up mid plan and tries to fight the giant robot. And the giant robot cuts away, and then we cut to another agent that is also being told to awaken the second sleeper, and that is the end of the issue. I think this is would be a perfectly fine issue if not for the stupid looking robot. It's I like having us back in modern day. I always like Captain America stories that involve menaces from World War II returning in modern day. I don't know why they don't just go ahead and bring Red Skull back for the storyline and save him for a later storyline. But I like what's going on, if only the robot didn't look so dumb. What do you think? I will point out that page eight 
just that whole action sequence of Captain America trying to make it to the actual spot in Germany where he has to be to get to this robot. It's a really super dynamic page. I just love, I mean, there's really no reason to have this whole page of him having to run from point A to point B to get there, but it's some of the best art in the issue. So I don't mind it at all. I like it as a matter of fact. But um, I like what they're doing with the story. Overall, I really think that the story is tons of fun. Uh, but yeah, you're right. The robot, I mean, you know, could be like, well, it's like an old fashioned robot. This is a, an old clunky robot like they would have had in Germany in the 1940s. Uh, but yeah, it's it's fine. It doesn't it doesn't bother me too much. Yeah. Okay. Let's go ahead and move on to X-Men. Let's do it. All right. So X-Men number 15, extra in this epic, the origin of the beast. Whenever they say they're going to talk about the origin of a mutant, I'm usually like, isn't there origin that they're a mutant? (laughs) (laughs) But I guess it's usually the story of their coming out as a mutant, more or less. We see on the cover, they are still going to be fighting the Sentinels. Let's hear it for these Marvel stalwarts who will be working overtime from now on to bring these adventures to you monthly. Smiling Stan Lee, writer, Jolly Jack Kirby, designer, Jovial J. Gavin, penciler, Darlin Dick Ayers, inker, adorable Artie Simak, letterer. So we again have one of those situations with uh, three artists involved in this thing here. So last issue was supposedly inked by Coletta. I didn't believe it was inked by Coletta because it didn't look like Coletta at all to me. And I thought the inks were shockingly good in that issue. Uh, This issue, I generally like airs a lot more than Coletta, but I do not like the inks. We once again have Kirby doing layouts, Gavin doing finished pencils, a.k.a. Werner Roth. And this time we have Dick Ayers coming and sinking it. You know, it's not a terrible issue. It doesn't look awful, but... I don't think it looks as good as last issue, and I think it's not beautiful looking, and there's a lot of sloppiness that we'll discuss as we go on. Not a big fan of the art. Sure. So at the end of last issue, the X-Men had followed the signals of the Sentinels out to what seemed like an empty field, and then essentially the Sentinel stronghold uh, raised itself up out of the ground and it seemed it was basically camouflaged in the ground and so essentially the top of the hill all rose up and you saw their sort of fortress weaponry and stuff like that showing up right underneath it. This sent everybody uh, tumbling all helter-skelter and so we get a few pages of them keeping the professor safe and saving themselves and getting all you know uh situated after that happened so they retreat and then they're like okay how are we going to get ourselves there they come up with the most bizarre way uh where Iceman creates this disc with two like i mean they're supposed to be things you steady yourself on like (laughs) things you grab onto but they look like two they look like two baby bottle nipples (laughs) yes they do (laughs) Uh, do you have another description you could do for this I was about to say nipples. Nipples was where my mind went. But but baby bottle nipples. Baby bottle yes. nipples. Um, so uh, he makes this disc with two baby bottle nipple looking things on it, and which are way too low. So then Beast and Iceman both hang on to the thing, and they're having to crouch down low to get their hands even on them, and the like little round nubs at the top are just like right above their thumbs. It just does not look like it's a good idea at all. So then uh, Scott then raises his visor 
and shoots a power beam at this thing and shoots it towards the Sentinels like a tiddlywink. And then at that point, the professor says, now, quickly, Angel, fly after them in case they need help. I'm like, dude, (laughs) you only now started to think maybe they're going to need help. But before they can fall, uh, so they're, they're out of control, they're about to fall, Angel is going to try to help them. But then a couple of tentacles come out of the uh, Sentinel base and grab them and pull them inside. The angel tries to follow them. He is repulsed by a bunch of flame that comes out. And uh, the two that were captured basically tell him, no, 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 you got to go back and get the others. Don't follow us. That doesn't make any sense. So the Beast and Iceman are dumped in a little cage in which they are gassed. Trask is still like being held captive by the Sentinels. Apparently, the reason they have kept him around is because he, I guess, is necessary for Master Mold to then make more Sentinels. I'm not entirely yeah. sure why, but he is. So they're keeping him around for this. And they say, okay, buddy, help us make more Sentinels. He doesn't want to do it. Professor X, apparently his mental powers can somewhat affect mechanical brains. He can't read their minds, really. He can't, like, manipulate their thoughts, but he can disable them. So the three Sentinels that were operating the guns that were shooting at them all suddenly slumped to the ground uh, unconscious. Again, we've got all the different markings on the Sentinels here. We've got A, L, T, 4, 3, 6, 1, 2, B, all sorts of different stuff here. A very unclear nomenclature (laughs) system. But I should point out that the Sentinels' last issue were colored the way Sentinels are normally colored, uh, dark purple, light purple, and pink. This issue, and you were saying that in your issue, they were colored much differently. Well, this issue, I think they're colored the way you're used to. This issue, they're colored completely differently. They're purple, red, and orange. Um, uh, yeah, I, I've got – well, I would call that a blue, but yeah, it's sort of the uh, – it's, it's a purpley blue – uh, sort of a burgundy red and then kind of a, a tangerine orange. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's last issue. They were colored the way I expect them to be colored. This issue, they're colored completely differently for some reason. My big problem with this issue is it just takes the X-Men way too long to make it inside. They were, you know, last issue, they're like, we found the bad guy's hideout. And this issue, it's like, okay, the bad guys are inside this hill. And then they don't get, most of the X-Men don't get inside the hideout until page 12. It's a 20-page story, and it takes them until page 12 to make it into the hideout. You know, and you have this endless Sturm and Drang, is, how is that pronounced, of the X-Men just throwing themselves against a grassy hill over and over again, trying to make it inside. It's very lame. That, that didn't strike me as lame. I, I thought that, you know, this is an impregnable fortress that they've got, and it takes them a while to actually break into the impregnable fortress. Page 11, Master Mold at the very top looks like a uh, caricature of like an Olmec, you know, <laughs> uh, carving of some sort there. Yes. <laughs> so uh, they blackmail basically all of our Trask into operating this machine that will be able to read the beast's mind. So we're about to get his origin via that. We see that Hank was being attacked by bullies. He's always had this sort of hunched over kind of physique. Uh, and then when people try to punch him, he could bounce all over the place. He almost gets run over by a car. He hops over the car and everyone is suddenly like, oh, what's going on with this guy? At the same time this is all going on, the rest of the X-Men are now inside the fortress. Uh, I will point out that on the last panel on page 14, Angel gives one of the Sentinels a throat punch, which, uh, yes. you know, <laughs> uh, and 
Marvel Girl really is doing some more interesting stuff with her powers in this issue, I've got to say. I meant to mention back on page 11, and I forgot to, that she's now finally figured out how to kind of fly, uh, essentially using her telekinetic powers to push the Earth away from her. Um, And it's like, okay, good, you're coming into your own. You're having better uses for your powers. And then on page 15, she uses her telekinetic powers to topple the Sentinel that Warren was not able to topple with his throat punch. She's able to go and knock him over. So the sisters are doing it for themselves in this month, uh, more or less. So we then see that um, Hank then, you know, was on the football team, but he was too good uh so people are like oh my goodness what's going on to this guy and then at one point he kicks off his shoes and hangs on to the goalposts with his feet and at that point um he flees because people are afraid of him so we meanwhile see the professor x is like hey wait they're reading the beast mind uh this isn't good they're gonna start learning everything about our hideout and our secret identities <laughs> and all this sort of yeah. stuff so he's like i gotta do something about this so he starts uh, mentally attacking master mold again how mental powers work against a robot i'm not sure but sure let's go ahead and go with it it's uh, artificial intelligence and he is going ahead and targeting its intelligence in the end the x-men appear to have been defeated and with this uh, heavy gravity ray and the sentinels are taking Bolivar Trask in the room to force him to create more sentinels. So we are not done with this story yet. We got more sentinels next month. So which is good. Sentinels are good. I, uh, yes. I, I, I like them. So, yeah, I agree. Uh, I like the sentinels. I'm glad to have more. I'm glad to keep this storyline going. Yeah, uh, let's see. Was there anything else I was going to say? Oh, wait, what was this other thing here? Uh, yes, when the professor was trying to do something about like keeping the beast from giving up his secrets, uh, he was thinking to himself, though I can accomplish no physical acts while I'm in my astral form, I can mentally focus my brain waves and bombard Hank's mind with sharp thought particles that will temporarily deaden his own thoughts. <laughs> okay. I just think, think the idea of sharp thought particles really uh, grabbed my attention. Yes. Um, yeah, this, you know, I, I do like seeing the X-Men fight the Sentinels, which is why I don't like that it takes them till page 12 to make it inside. It's very bizarre choice to have the Beast's origin be sort of awkwardly shoehorned into this issue, but yeah. I like it. I like his origin. I like, I like that it's very different from Warren, where Warren's parents have no idea he has powers, whereas the Beast's parents are totally cool with his powers and like it, and the Beast is pretty cool with his powers too. He gets in trouble because he scores a touchdown and then throws off his shoes to hang from the goalposts, not ashamed of himself, and his parents aren't ashamed of him, but then, you know, just goes to save her to be trained better. I like that element. My, one of my biggest problems with this issue is the master mold is this, you know, so you've already got these giant robots and then they have this leader who's an even more giant robot called master mold. Well, he's pretty tall dude. If he ever were to stand up from that chair, he would need a very tall room to be in. Even as it is, he's sitting down in the chair and the height of the room he is in never looked big enough for him, but it greatly varies from page to page to page in terms of we first meet him on page eight, and it looks like maybe the room is a little big enough for him to be in if he doesn't stand up. Then we get to page 11 next time we see him, and clearly 
you know, the ceiling has lowered in the room and now he really shouldn't, uh, he, he really is going to have to duck his head even to sit down. Then when we get to page 17, the ceiling has lowered even more. And how on earth is his head? If you look at the middle panel on page 17. Let's see, I'm going to it now. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, that makes no sense. And then on page 20, he's standing straight up. He's standing at full height. <laughs> Yes, um, given how low the ceilings have gotten progressively lower over the course of the issue, you really don't want to be standing up in there, Master Bowl. That is uh, that is not a good idea. Um, uh, you know, I, I I I think that this is probably one of those things that goes with the whole three artists thing. In that, yes. you know, J when Jack Kirby was just sort of sketching sketching out the art and sort of where the characters would be and what they would be doing, he doesn't necessarily have to think too much about how tall are these ceilings and how tall am I going to depict the ceilings being? Because he probably was, you know, there may be one line indicating, you know, where the ceiling starts or something like that. And so then that has to be filled in by the other folks who are then as they go through like, oh, crap, this guy needs to be standing up. Um uh, okay, let me do something else. I really think that's that's where that's coming in. Um, one other thing I meant to mention earlier when uh, Master Mold is getting rid of the professor's astral self with his microelectric blasts, professor thinks to himself, my astral image is composed of electrified thought waves. It can be harmed by the Master Mold's microelectric attack. So, um... All right, now we know his astral image is electrified thought waves. Uh, file that away for later. I'm sure that it will be used uh, in the future. Yes. Okay, so uh, that's it for this issue. I think that uh, that this is a good issue. The Sentinels are excellent villains for the X-Men to be fighting. Very odd time to flashback to the Beast origin, but it's an interesting origin. And this is a fine issue. If only the ceiling did not keep moving. That's my biggest complaint. <laughs> It's yeah. not so bad. Yes. Okay. All, All right. right. So, so uh, you were doing the Avengers. All right. This is a long evening. It is already, it is almost 1 a.m. in Greensboro, North Carolina. But we are doing nine issues now, and we're going to have to get used to it. The Avengers number 23, once an Avenger. Okay looking cover, interesting looking cover of Giant Kang attacking the four Avengers. So here, here are my thoughts about the cover. Wanda, who is one of the most powerful Avengers as far as I'm concerned in Cap's kooky quartet, is just basically pointing like, hey, look over there, right? While everyone yes. else is trying to attack him. Oh, that's right. I'd totally forgotten about this from the last time. It's really unclear where Hawkeye's bowstring is in relation to <laughs> like, he's holding he's holding his he's holding the thing to where the bowstring is above his arm rather than below essentially on the outside part of his arm <laughs> rather than the inside part of his arm. There is no way that is not going to completely <laughs> slice up his arm there. Meanwhile, Captain America looks like he's trying to throw his shield in the most awkward way you could possibly do it. It's like, you know, if you're throwing a Frisbee, you know, usually you curl your arm up against your chest and then fling your arm out. This is the thing where instead you hold your arm out to the side and fling your your arm towards your, your chest while you throw the thing. That's what he's doing there. It's an no. odd cover. There are some weird choices that were made. 
Yes, uh, I had not noticed how bizarre trying to figure out how that bone arrow work is. Uh, it's pretty awesome. That's that's pretty bizarre. <laughs> well, we have we can tell from the cover that Kang is returning. Kang is a perfectly fine villain. He has not been used beautifully so far, but he is going to make huge progress in this issue. He is going to become a much more interesting villain because his love interest is going to be introduced, who I think always makes Kang a much more interesting character. So, but first we go and begin, and we have a big shock on the first page. We have Stan Lee, Rollickin writer, Don Heck, Prance and Penciler, and then we have a new person who is introduced as a dazzling delineator. It is John Romita. We have John Romita joining the Marvel Universe at this point, joining the superhero Marvel Universe as an anchor on this book and doing an amazing job. We were talking about how Tomeo's inks looked good on Heck in Iron Man. Romita's inks look even better on Heck here in Avengers. You know, they had brought in Wally Wood to ink Heck on the Avengers, and he had tried to add some more sense of three-dimensionality to the characters and had done an okay job, and those were pretty good issues of wood inking Heck. Well, here, Romita does a better job. Romita does a fantastic job inking Heck, and it really looks nice. It looks specifically like, as we're going to find out, it looks like Milt Kniff. Hmm. Okay, yeah. We have the three Avengers who have gotten ditched by Captain America. Here's Wanda and Pietro and Clint and they are like, oh, what are we going to do? We've been pitched by Captain America. We then cut to Captain America who, you know, what does Captain America want to do with himself when he's not being Captain America? This has been a huge question that has never been adequately answered in this book. He seems to have totally given up on intelligence work. Instead, he has gone to upstate New York to be a boxing sparring partner. He has followed just a classified ad saying that someone is looking for a boxing sparring partner in um, upstate New York on a ranch, and he goes up there to do it and quickly proves he's good with his fists and gets the job. And, no, and notice that one of the guys he's talking to, one of the, you know, the guy he's talking to to try to get the job who doesn't, who wants him to buzz off, has what you've referred to as cauliflower ear. And I did finally look that up to be like, is that a thing? And yes, apparently it is a real thing. Yes. So I had not realized that, uh, that I was flying so low on that, that uh, you were not backing me up on cauliflower ear. Yes, it's a thing. Um, so then, but yes, but really, Steve Rogers really looks like Steve Cannon in these yeah, pages. Yeah, you're right. Especially and, on uh, page two on that last panel, on the uh, second to last panel on page two. He really does, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. Huh. So something about the heck, uh, Romina combo really looks like Milk Kniff, who is, of course, one of the all-time great comics artists, did uh, Terry and the Pirates, followed by Steve Cannon. So then we then cut to, and you always point this out. Kang is watching the fact that Steve Rogers is off being a sparring partner, and he's saying, with their mighty fighting team at its lowest ebb, the time has come for Kang to strike. So, like, why do you need to wait, dude? You time travel. You can go from any time to any time. You don't need to wait for things to happen. Obviously, it makes no sense. So, then- so, so, so here's the thing, I, and there will be more problems like that in this issue, but this one didn't bother me as much this time as it did last time I read this, in that I, I was then saying, oh, you know, one way you could read that here is you're saying, like, maybe he's just scrolling through his history time travel banks and it's like ah oh, now is my time you know like he's oh, yeah. found it now but um but there are other things in this issue where it just oh actually later on that same page though this is the kind of stuff that bothers me on the next to last panel on page four it says a short time later back in the 20th century <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that's yeah okay <laughs> 
Yes. Go on. Continue. <laughs> so, uh, so then Kang goes ahead and attacks the three remaining Avengers in a very bizarre way. He adds an additional four to their headquarters, and uh, which is a bizarre sort of trap, and then lures them upstairs. And they like go, oh, the problem is upstairs. Let's go upstairs. And they're like, wait a second, upstairs. We don't have a third story to this place. <laughs> and he's like, yes, I lured you onto a fake story of your own building that kidnaps them and takes them to the future. And then we find in the future that King is trying to take over a kingdom and he is demanding that the princess of the kingdom marry him. And this is Ravona. And Ravona is a character I always like. I always prefer King stories that involve Ravona. He is head over heels with her. She does not love him. He says, if you incur my displeasure, I may not permit you to one day rule the universe at my side, Ravona. And she says, I'd rather die. And he says, that too can be arranged with King. All things are possible. And I really like her look. I like the way Heck designs her. And especially Romita makes her look very pretty. I am wondering what's up with that little eye visor. They never really. (laughs) Well, again, I guess that's just part of what goes on in comics. Everybody's got to have something to distinguish their face. So why is her father, the king, wearing a mask? You know, who knows? Maybe ceremonial headdress for their uh, for their culture. Exactly. Well, but one of the things I saw here is that, you know, when you're like, okay, here's the good guy, here's the bad guy. And then she said at one point to her father, it matters not my father. Never would I share the throne with a commoner, not if all the might of the universe were his. And I'm like, oh, see, you're just a snob and possible eugenicist, and I don't like (laughs) you anymore. (laughs) (laughs) All right, go on. So then Cap is, meanwhile, doing his sparring and then hears on the radio that the Avengers are in trouble, and he quickly has to punch his way out of that. You see that he fought the champ with one punch, and uh, then he goes to go and help rescue the Avengers. He eventually shows up in the future. They do very awkward plotting where they explain King has to think to himself, he carries the Avengers recreator, the accursed instrument, which Iron Man once used to probe the recent past. By shining it upon their building, he learned it was King who objected his fellow Avengers. Okay, that's uh, awkward plotting and very, very nice of you to think that for us, King, to uh, help explain what's going on in the issue. Yes. Although and, uh, I do I do like that. I mean, that that is a piece of technology they had before. And you know, you'd be like, wow, that would be really useful now and actually have it rather than just like, oh, let's, you know, like, oh, yeah, we established this is some science we've got. So let's just go ahead and use that science. So then Captain America frees the Avengers. They all attack King. King then knocks them all out all over again. Ravona is torn as to whether or not to be with King or not. And then things end on a cliffhanger with really, I love this last panel with this huge three turreted tank crunching right towards us and shooting its beams off in our direction while there's a massive army attacking behind it. It's a nice looking issue. I think Heck does a really nice job with the sci-fi setting. Bermuda does an excellent job inking him. I like having her phone around. I thought that one of the big mistakes the Marvel Cinematic Universe made, I loved Loki. Loki was a great series, but they went ahead and they introduced King in the Loki series, but they went ahead and had a character named Ravona who was not King's love interest. Now she may eventually become King's love interest. I doubt it. I think they were just saying like, she was basically a new character who was invented for that show. And they're like, well, we don't like to do new names from scratch in the MCU if we've got a new character we're introducing, we like to borrow some other character's name who we're probably never going to use 
And so that implies they were never going to use Ravona. They were never going to have Kang have a love interest in the MCU. And I think that's a mistake because I think Ravona's story is, I think Kang is always helped by having Ravona around. So I think it was a mistake to use up her name on an unrelated character. Yes, well, given the current state of the uh, actor that they hired to play Kang, uh, they are probably scrambling to rethink a whole bunch of things anyway. Yes. And who knows how that'll all turn out. You know, it's, it's, we don't know. But still, I think that Marvel is definitely panicking <laughs> with that yes. and might be coming up with something else. Okay, so uh, let me just go back and talk about certain things that jumped out at me in this. First of all, during the first couple of pages, Quicksilver saying, enough. Have we not learned that even the smallest arguments can lead to hard feelings and possible breakup? And Hawkeye replies, who appointed you the Billy Graham of our group, Speedy? (laughs) I'm like, "Uh, okay, so what was Billy Graham's cultural you know, whatever of this era, you know, uh, it just, it's like, what, what is that supposed to mean? That's I think strange. he was just considered like America's counselor or something like the person who gives Americans good advice is Billy Graham or something like that. Yeah. Maybe, maybe here's one of the things that bothers me about Kang. Like I said, that particular statement, the first time I read it, yeah, it really bugged me. The one that you were talking about with like, now my time has come. Now I'm like, eh, you could read it in a way that makes sense. But then you have stuff like him thinking, though my own century fears me as the most ruthless conqueror of all time, my triumph is a hollow one so long as the 20th century escapes my tyranny. Why? Yes. Why? Well, I guess he has also tried to go back and conquer medieval times. So, uh, you know, but a hollow victory, I don't. Yeah. Well, given that he is also Rabatat, he has also tried to conquer Egyptian times. But uh, yes, yeah. he um, generally speaking, if your sense of well-being is dependent on you having conquered every single time period in human history, I think you need to work on you, I think is what you need to do. And less <laughs> worry less about conquering every single time period in human history, because, uh, you know, like Ken, you are enough. You're never going to be enough <laughs> if you are trying to conquer all of human history. You are Kang off. You are Kang enough. You are Kang enough, Kang. <laughs> all right. For those of you who may be listening years from now, there's the Barbie movie and Kang. It's a whole thing right now. Okay, so <laughs> um, yeah, but when they when they go up into the uh, fake new floor that's been added to Avengers Mansion, uh, Hawkeye says, "What gives? If there's no one here, then how?" And then uh, Quicksilver interrupts Hawkeye, Wanda. I've never seen this room before. Where did it come from? And Wanda's like, you're right. This used to be the corridor to the roof. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Oh, and then, okay, so here's another one that uh, that bugs me with the whole Kang, how does time travel work thing. At that moment, centuries away, a gloved hand <laughs> strikes a fateful button. <laughs> uh, yes. yeah, how many of these am I going to find? Oh, yeah. When uh, Hawkeye, Quicksilver, and Scarlet Witch are all held in these little um, bell jar-looking traps, uh, Hawkeye is thinking to himself, looks like glass, but it's a hundred times stronger. Even my blast arrow couldn't shatter it. There's not much room inside this thing, so if he <laughs> actually – there's barely enough room for – there's probably not even enough room for him to pull back his arm, you know, to, to pull back the bow. But I, if, 
Yeah. <laughs> if this blast arrow went off in here, uh, how is he still around? That makes no sense. Caption there on that panel says, and then the frail-looking beauty whom many consider to be the weakest Avenger makes a decision. I'm like, okay, if Thor and Hulk and, you know, maybe Iron Man and Giant Man were still in the Avengers, maybe I could go ahead and let that sentence slide. But in Cap's kooky quartet, you're really going to claim that the one woman who, like, basically has magic powers when you've got two people with zero superpowers whatsoever (laughs) is the weakest Avenger? I'm like, no, buddy. She is your best bet at this point. And here's one thing that I don't think they stick with. (laughs) So when she uses her hex power to get out, she says... By the talent which lives in the heart of me, I hex this cage. Let me be free. Uh, When, you know, I mean, she later, many, many years later, ends up learning actual magic from Agatha Harkness. Uh, We are nowhere near there yet. (laughs) Has she ever, like, like basically recited a spell to do her hex powers before? No. I do not think she ever before or since had to rhyme in order to cast the spell. This is, this is, um, you would think this would be a new writer who would be fooling around with the character here. This is utterly bizarre and never followed up on. But yeah, I was shocked by the art in this issue. I mean, and part of it is that, you know, John Romita, there's a reason why they're going to hire John Romita eventually to be their art director in that he is a really fantastic artist, a really fantastic embellisher, a really fantastic inker, a really fantastic penciler, really fantastic at all these different things. And, you know, for years, they're going to have him, you know, redrawing faces uh, to make sure that face matches sort of the 70s Marvel look. And, you know, this is our first taste of some of that. And it really is amazing what he is doing here with Hex work. And as I said, I have been an improbable Hex defender for much of the first uh, couple of years of this podcast, but that is going to be very few and far between at this point, just uh, for various reasons. But this may be the last gasp of me saying, wow, this is a really good Hex issue. <laughs> and uh, But it's primarily due to uh, John Romita. Yep. All right. It is late, Steve. Yep. So any final thoughts? Uh, hey, this is it. This is the end of 1965. We have had it a is. long run through 1965. This is the last issue of the last month of 1965. Any final thoughts on these five books or 1965? These five books were pretty good. I kind of like us mixing it up here. I am a little bit unsure about the uh, amount of time it's taking us to get through the extra issue here. As I said, we might want to talk about rescheduling our recording sessions, but I generally have really liked most of this stuff. Let's see. In this uh, episode, we did Fantastic Four. Fantastic. Strange Tales. Really, really good. Tales of Suspense. eh, Had its ups and downs. Uncanny X-Men ups and downs and then avengers surprisingly good i'm all for it and i will i don't necessarily have much to say about 1965 but 1966 will be the year of soupy sales which i'm looking forward to (laughs) yes that is going to be very exciting (laughs) um but yes i think 1965 has been a pretty great year for marvel comics and these have been five pretty good bucks and i enjoyed mixing it up okay america it is 1.18 a.m. in Greensboro, North Carolina. It is 12.18 a.m. in Evanston, Illinois. We hope you have a wonderful uh, time. Thank you for coming back, and we will see you soon. 
Uh, yes, and to uh, everybody else in the world, gracias, danke, Shane, <laughs> you know, all that sort of stuff. Dasvidaniya. Dasvidaniya, yes, there you go. We look forward to joining you again soon. Thank you for uh, sticking with us through our technical difficulties we had that delayed things, and um, uh, hopefully we will be able to go a little more smoothly this time. So uh, keep listening, and please rate and review us, and uh, stay safe out there. Okay, bye, everybody. Take care. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.